and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast, an ongoing conversation about public policy, governance, and global issues. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and today we're joined by Graham Allison, a former dean of the Kennedy School, who's currently the Douglas Dillon Professor of Government and director of the Kennedy School's Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs. Graham, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So, China has a population of 1.4 billion people, uh, middle class, larger than the population of the United States, and it's starting to exert a growing influence in the world arena. Uh, You've been studying and writing about China's upcoming role for a little while now. Can you give us kind of a a baseline for what you've been learning? Well, uh, it's a long story, but uh, to try to be brief. Basically, the rise of China is the geopolitical event of our lifetime. It's hard to believe, but in the just 32 years since China uh, began its march to the market in about 1980, China has gone from being nowhere, not even on the screen, to becoming the second largest economy in the world on track to overtake the U.S. as the largest economy of the world in the next decade. So, I mean, literally in 1980, China had a smaller economy than that of Spain, and now it has the second largest economy in the world. So, uh, the rise of such a power uh, in economics, but in every other dimension, so rapidly uh, on so many different dimensions is a hist- this is unique in history. Never before has a country risen so far, so fast, on so many different dimensions as China has over this period. Now, what do we know about this from history then? And this is, I think, the big idea. I've called this Thucydides' trap. Now, Thucydides was the great uh, historian of uh, Greece in the 5th century B.C., who observed and fought in a war between the two great city-states of that period, Athens and Sparta. And in a famous uh, line in his history of the Peloponnesian War, which students at Harvard and elsewhere learn, he says, quote, it was the rise of Athens and the fear that that inspired in Sparta that made war inevitable. So he had two variables, rise and fear. And he had a rising power and a ruling power. Now, what we know from history is that uh, since 1500, in 11 of the 15 cases in which a rising power rivaled a ruling power, the outcome was war. So this is a huge challenge. And what I've written about and said is that the leadership of the U.S. and also of China need to appreciate that if they do no better than their counterparts in other countries in previous cases in which a rising power rivaled a ruling power, the outcome is going to be catastrophic for both countries. So this is a huge challenge. The Thucydidean challenge, in effect, means this is not simply, well, we hope the U.S. and China will get along and let's talk about this little item or that little item. We need to realize that this is a is a historic uh, event that will challenge to the extreme even the best leaders in both places. And uh, if they don't do better than history as usual, uh, that's going to be bad news for folks like you. 
I think folks in the United States are very familiar with that idea of uh, having some fear over China's rise. Uh, do you think that there's something that uh, the United States should fear in the rise? Is there is it a zero-sum zero game in which uh, the United States has all to lose from China's rise? Well, it's certainly not a zero-sum game. Very good question. And as China has become wealthier, China has become basically the supplier uh, to the U.S. And the reason why American prices are low and Walmarts are full and Americans can consume as much junk as we love to consume is that there's these Chinese supply lines. So there are many pluses in the rise of China, actually just as human beings. In the rise of China, 600 million people have in your own lifetime gone from abject poverty of where they were at less than $2 a day to being able to eat and to, to live. Now, how good is that? I mean, just as a human being, you, anybody who's not touched by that just is missing, you know, missing the picture. So there's a lot of positives in this, but the proposition that a rising power uh, will demand more say and more sway in affairs is not unnatural. This is what's happened before in history. If we try to think about when the U.S. rose in equivalent fashion almost 100 years ago, there was a famous uh, Harvard graduate, uh, Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, he was first Secretary of the Navy, and then he was President. And he found it entirely peculiar that the British, who had actually provided for the U.S. 100 years of free security by providing freedom of the seas, were nonetheless policing our back yard, as he thought of it, in the Caribbean, and intervening to discuss how the territorial dispute should be settled in Mexico or Venezuela. He thought, forget about it. You know, we're big, we're strong, we'll take care of these issues, and even was prepared to threaten war with both the Germans and with the British over this. So I think the what Americans will have, and there's certainly an element of fear in it, because Americans tend to think it's some, there's something natural about the Western Pacific being, you know, our lake in which our ships operate. And we know that what we're doing is uh, good uh, because it's provided a healthy environment for everybody, which it has. Uh, and we think they should be thankful, uh, which some are, but most aren't. But the notion that a China might see this slightly different, particularly as the Chinese see themselves as a great center of civilization, and they think that this is the restoration of their greatness, would be plausible if we try to put ourselves in their shoes. I think uh, this will be somewhat uncomfortable for Americans. It seems for the United States to lose the uh, position as the world's largest superpower, you could understand that problem. Uh, in the near term, it seems that there are a lot of China's neighbors, smaller nations, which are having difficulty with uh, China's rise. Can you talk about, about that? Well, this is in this new book that is published on February 1st called uh, Li Kuan Yu, The Grand Master. We uh, ask him this question, and I would say he's got a much better appreciation of this than I do because he was the, he, he was the former, he was the founder uh, and former prime minister of Singapore. His son uh, is currently the prime minister of Singapore, and he has for 50 years been, you know, a major actor on the stage, living in a very successful small city state called Singapore with about six million people, but which 
survives by not by sleeping, but by being agile and you know making adjustments. So, from the perspective of the neighbors, the American security blanket that's been provided for these uh, decades after World War II has been fantastic. And they've enjoyed, again, huge rises and improvements in their income and their security. But he, if you ask him the question, well, is are the Chinese leaders serious about their becoming the predominant power in Asia? He says, of course, why not? Who, who could imagine otherwise? And when you ask, well, and how will they behave towards their neighbors? And how will their neighbors feel about it? He says, this is going to be somewhat uncomfortable. But he says, remember, how did people in Honduras feel uh, when the U.S. wanted to build a canal in Honduras? And the Honduras government said, you know, no. And we sponsored a coup and created a new country, Panama, and gave us a, you know, a, a canal. Well, you know, the guys in Honduras didn't think that was too great. Or when we sponsored a coup uh, that was unsuccessful, but trying to overturn the government of Mexico. Some Mexicans have some resentments about the U.S. Indeed, I have a Mexican friend who always reminds me that there's some reason why they call that place New Mexico. You know, that used to be Old Mexico and a good part of Texas, which you guys think is your state. But, you know, that used to be our state. So the fact that uh, the rising power creates some discomfort for its neighbors is, again, quite natural. So uh, recently, I think it was just a few months ago, uh, China established a new city and a military base in the Paracel Islands. And that was not taken lightly by Vietnam and I believe the Philippines, which are, which all, I believe there are a couple other countries involved, but all have some claim to those islands. There are a few other island chains that are uh, under, you know, some some, uh, discussion, I guess. What is it about those islands that is so important? They've been uh, uh, disputed for decades now. And it seems that now is the time that we're seeing a lot more uh, military and diplomatic tension over it. Well, there are two things going on here, so it's a very good question. It's both in the South China Sea, which you're referring to, and in the East China Sea, where the Japanese have administrative control of a set of islands that the Japanese call the Senkakus. Chinese have a different name for it. But in both cases, a rising China is becoming more assertive. But particularly in the South China Sea, there's now more and more reason to believe that underneath these islands and shoals may be uh, gas and oil that could be exploited. China is uh, has accounted for half of all the new consumption of oil in the last 20 years and will account for about half of all the new oil and gas consumption in the next 20 years. So it's a, you know, a mad search for uh, sources of fuel. And if there should be fuel underneath those islands, they're eager to assert that they're theirs. So the fact that there's a contest among the states about uh, disputed territories, I think, is quite understandable and quite reasonable. And again, I mean, I don't want to go back too much to the American analogy, but when the question was, well, uh, sort of uh, who should settle this piece of territory with Canada? If you look at actually the tail of Alaska, so Alaska is a famous state. I love to go there to go fishing. There's a big tail that goes down to Juneau, and it basically cuts off uh, large parts of British Columbia from the sea. 
how, how, where did that tale come from? I always say that's a good one for your listeners to go look at, but you'll see that there was a dispute. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt said, we'll settle it our way. The British said, wait a minute, you know, Canada's our colony, and the Canadians said, we're your neighbor. Uh, they end up settling it our way. So uh, apart from the oil issues and the obvious uh, diplomatic issues, uh, there also seem to be waterway issues, uh, uh, shipping lanes, all of these things, control over those areas. Uh, recently, the Obama administration has signaled a so-called a shift towards Asia to focus more on Asia. Is that the appropriate response? If China's rise is all but inevitable, is that what the United States should be doing to protect its interests? Well, I think, again, an extremely good question. I think uh, most of the American commentary about the disputes uh, in, in free passage through the waterways is misguided and, I think, misleading. Uh, the Chinese have bigger stakes in free passage for a transit over naval uh, you know, uh, paths than we do. The Chinese, this is where they get their uh, oil every day. This is where, how they sell their goods. So they're not proposing to contest a freedom of the seas. And this is an area in which we and they could agree, you know, reach, I think, satisfactory agreement in about five minutes. You know? So I would say that uh, where, where I fault uh, administration policies for, I would say, the last 20 years, is in not uh, trying to identify the areas in which we have common interests between China and the U.S., which is about 80% of the issues, I would say, of the things that matter most, and finding ways to cooperate on those in a win-win context, recognizing that, of course, there'll be some areas in which we have strong differences of views, and about those we should also be clear. But if you look at uh, the idea that in thinking about the U.S. and China in 2013, if you just were to read the newspaper every day, you would think that, well, the really important issues are what's happening with some islands in the Paracels that most Americans can't even find the islands or the Sinkakus, which we couldn't find those either. And that, that really is the stuff, okay? To which the answer is, wait, wait, wait a minute. There's this country called North Korea. It's become a nuclear weapon state. Who is the greatest influence with it? China. Is it interested in becoming a nuclear exporter? Of course not. So should we be? Uh, there's another country, Pakistan. It's got the fastest growing nuclear arsenal on earth. It's a frail, flailing state. It could even collapse or come loose. Uh, so you're looking at, well, who's got an interest in that? Well, who's got influence? The Chinese? Us. Okay? Uh, we could go right around the, the list. So China has enjoyed, within the frameworks that the U.S. has provided, the greatest growth and increase in terms of its uh, strength ever in its history. So that's conditions in which uh, if we were smarter and they were smarter, it should be possible to work out you know, adjustments, but recognizing that the rising power will be full of enthusiasm and hubris, and the ruling power will be uh, too complacent about uh, conditions that are going to have to change. So unlike Sparta and <coughs> Athens, you don't necessarily think we are destined for conflict? or 
Well, if you were just a chartist, you would say uh, conflict is more likely than not. But I think that if conflict should occur, in the same way that after World War I, people in both Germany and Britain thought, what in the world did we do? I mean, the Kaiser was gone, Germany was crushed, Britain was bled of its uh, young men and its, uh, its uh, resources. So nobody won from World War I. Uh, was just a stupid outcome. And the idea that a Serbian terrorist who had assassinated some archduke whom nobody knew his name could become the trigger to a great war that destroyed all of the parties is bizarre. I mean, it still is a wonderful historical read because you look at it and you say, these guys can't have been that uh, you know, stupid, to which the answer is, these were not stupid people. These were were uh, leaders and statesmen, but who failed to look at the future, and there's no reason why we need to repeat it. So I want, I have one last question. In your uh, discussions with uh, Lee Kuan Yew, what was the most surprising thing that you learned from him? Well, the book is absolutely chock full of... Uh, uh, of zingers because, I mean, he surprises you about everything. Uh, about China, he's quite confident that it's rising and that the rise is almost inevitable and that people should be recognizing it and adjusting it. But interestingly enough, he is not, not pessimistic about the U.S. He knows the U.S., he likes the U.S., and he emphasizes the extent to which American resilience and the capacity to take in new people and absorb them uh, so that uh, uh, the best talent in the world wants to come to the U.S. and can succeed here as Americans is something the Chinese don't have a willingness or capacity to do, and that provides a significant advantage for the U.S. So he's not counting the U.S. out, uh, uh, but he uh, thinks that it's going to be a big, uh, a big challenge for both China and the U.S. as they go forward. Well, Professor Graham Allison, thank you so much for being on PolicyCast today. Thank you very much for having me. You've been listening to PolicyCast, a production of Harvard Kennedy School. More information can be found at hkspolicycast.org.